All right. Well, good morning, you guys. It is great to see you guys. If, uh, I think there are probably a few movies that have created the kind of debate and discussion that surrounds them as the, uh, Nolan's Inception. I don't know if you guys have seen it back in 2010. Uh, but as you guys know, the story is Cobb, the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, spins the top uh, and, and begins to wobble at the very end of the movie and le- leaves the audience wondering whether Cobb is in the real world or whether he's in the dream world. Whether he's being reunited with his kids in, in reality or whether this is simply a figment of his imagination and a dream world, so to speak. If you guys know the movie well, then you know that much of the discussion about this movie, much of the debate really centers around these things called totems. Uh, these things that really help uh, for the characters in the movie distinguish between the real world or the dream world. Uh, even much discussion, there's websites all bound that will allow you to spend an entire week wrestling with the ins and outs and analyzing the movie Inception, all right? Some of you guys, when the movie first came out in 2010, probably did just that. You spent about a week, put school and life on hold, right? And, got, and thought, I have to know what this movie is about. I have to know whether the top falls or whether it keeps spinning. I have to know whether he's in the dream world or the real world. And so, I don't know if you guys are a little like me, but that movie just absolutely fascinated me. And it really comes down to much of the discussion really centers around these things called totems. There's even debates about whether this guy, whether Cobb's totem was actually the spinning top or whether it was his wedding ring, all right? That, that appears uh, different places in different scenes, whether he's wearing it or not. And so there's debate abounding all over the place about what the totem was for Cobb, about what the uh, top signifies and whether it's going to fall or not, or whether he's in the dream world or the real world. I think the movie is absolutely fascinating, but it's a movie in which the characters that are walking through it are constantly encountering all kinds of change. Moving from dream worlds to real worlds, moving from past to present to future, there's all kinds of passing of time and all kinds of changing of circumstances. And so the totem really ends up being a very focal point for the movie. In fact, it is the very ending scene of the movie is really all about that totem, that spinning top. And honestly, in many ways, I want to say to you guys, as we kind of think about our own lives, it's not that y'all's lives are straight out of the movie Inception, all right? It's not like you guys are like, hey, this is kind of my life, right? I'm kind of going in between real worlds and dream worlds, right? Uh, but I think there's a lot of connection, a lot of similarities between your lives and, and even the movie Inception. You guys are constantly moving through life, and time passes by incredibly fast. And it's not just that time passes by incredibly fast, but also you guys are encountering change after change after change. And there's a sense for each one of us that we need, in some sense, a kind of totem that allows us to have perspective and grounding as time flies by and as change occurs over and over again. I want you guys to think even about the fact that come Monday, summer term one ends, which means we are at the halfway point of summer what in the Sam world happened, right? <laughs> How are we halfway through summer, right? July 4th is always so exciting, but it also comes with a bit of sadness that summer is halfway gone, right? Which brings me great depression, all right? Uh, I love summer, all right? Not the Texas heat, but I love just the freedom of life, the slowness of the pace of summer, right? Some of you guys are heading into your junior year or your senior year at Texas A&M University or your sixth senior year. I don't know what it is for you, all right? And there's a sense of how in the world did you get here so fast, right? Felt like it was just yesterday that you showed up as a little freshman who needed a map because you had no idea where anything was on campus. And now here you are, junior or senior. Again, what in the world has happened? It's not just that time flies by, but change is constant in our lives, right? Some of you guys entered into a dating relationship this summer, and you're calling this the summer of love, right? Life is good. Some of you guys just got out of a dating relationship, and life is not so good. Some of you guys are hoping and desperately hoping to get into Texas A&M University come fall. Some of you guys are pleading upon the mercy of God to desperately get out of this place and graduate this summer, right? Uh, Change is constant. We're in relationships, we're out of relationships. We're in universities, we're out of universities, right? Change is occurring all the time. My question for you guys is, as time flies by and as change occurs over and over again, almost like a cycle that is never-ending, My question for you guys is, what grounds you? 
What provides you perspective in life, no matter the change, no matter the stage of life, no matter how fast time is flying by? What provides you a grounding of perspective, even security in the midst of a constantly changing world and a life that seems to have unending change? What is that for you? Psalm 90 is going to provide us an answer to that, in a sense, a totem for us, so to speak, if you will, uh, that's going to provide us grounding and perspective. So if you have your Bibles open to Psalm 90, I will tell you guys, Psalm 90 is probably one of my favorite Psalms uh, of the Old Testament. I absolutely love the Psalm. I love spending time in it, right? Especially at big moments of change, especially in the big seasons of life. Psalm 90 is just timeless, in a sense. I love this Psalm. As you guys turn there, I'll tell you guys, in a sense, that ultimately Moses, who's going to write this psalm, writes it during a period in which Israel's wandering in the wilderness, that Moses is going to write a psalm, and ultimately I think he's going to do uh, one basic thing. He's going to highlight the very nature and the character of a God, but he's going to zero us in on two basic attributes of God's character. First is going to be his eternality, and second will be his immutability. Moses is going to want to show you and I that God is eternal and that he's immutable, or, which is a fancy word for saying unchanging. That in the midst of time that flies by so fast, in the midst of life that has constant change, unending cycle of change, Moses for the nation of Israel and for you and I is going to zero us in on the fact that God is eternal, that he stands above all time no matter how fast it flies by, and that he's also unchanging in direct contrast to the very realities of our lives, of our world, of our circumstances, and really the very nature of history that life is constantly changing. God stands outside of that as well. And in the midst of those things, the very understanding of who God is really provides us a totem or a grounding, a point of reference for us to weather that storm and to have perspective and even security in it. That's where Moses is going to take us this morning. Psalm 9, I want you guys to begin in verse 1. We're going to basically see this, that God is eternal. We're going to see in a sense that Moses is going to emphasize God's eternality. Look at verse 1 of chapter 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Ultimately, I think Moses is going to try to highlight the very eternality of God, of his existence, of his nature. And he's going to do that really by providing us a series of exhibits that act as a contrast to the eternality of God. All right, Exhibit A will really be humanity's experience. Moses says, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. What is Moses saying? Why is it significant? Think about the fact that Moses is writing during a time in which the nation of Israel is wandering through the wilderness. And so life uh, and years in the wilderness are passing by incredibly slow or maybe fast. In the midst of all the change, in the midst of all those perspectives, though, Moses says, you have been our dwelling place no matter the difference, no matter the change. Think about the fact that as they wander through the wilderness, they're going to have new challenges, new temptations, new realities, new specifics of location every single day. In fact, as they kind of change over and over again, basically Moses is saying, no matter where we land in the wilderness, no matter where we were last night, tomorrow, next month, next year, or 20 years from now, no matter those constant changing circumstances, God has been their refuge and their dwelling place, no matter the locale, no matter the place in the wilderness, no matter their sense of being lost. God has been their refuge, and not just for their experience, but he says, for all generations. Moses is making an incredible statement, Exhibit A, for human experience, his generation, and all generations, that God is a hiding place, a refuge, a dwelling place for all of humanity. If you guys have ever traveled overseas, you may know this, especially for a person like myself that's an incredibly picky eater. When I travel overseas, it's like an unending world of edible chaos, all right? Uh, I'm incredibly picky, and so it's a bit of a fear factor kind of thing for me when I travel overseas. It's like an unending world of just unfamiliarity and strange things, all right? Which is for me why McDonald's is like this edible just dream and oasis wherever I find it overseas, all right? Now, none of us would ever admit the fact that we like McDonald's in the States. None of you guys would ever admit that you like to eat there or that you like it. 
But when you go overseas, all right, all of a sudden it's unashamed. This place is like, you can find it all over the world. But it is an, a beacon, a refuge of great edible joy and hope, all right? While everything is changing and everything is uncertain, McDonald's is there as a familiarity for us Americans and as just edible delight. You guys think I'm crazy, all right? Maybe you haven't traveled overseas or maybe you're not as picky of an eater as I myself. But McDonald's is kind of a refuge, so to speak. I'm not saying that God and McDonald's are the same, all right? But ultimately, here's what I want to say, all right? Moses is saying that in the midst of their wondering experience, in the midst of all of their uncertainty, that ultimately God is their refuge for their generation, no matter their circumstances and for all generations. Ultimately, God spans uh, and his, his duration is beyond all human generations. It's not just humanity that's exhibit A, but exhibit B comes to nature itself. Notice what he says in verse 2. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, ultimately you existed, right? That ultimately got, Moses runs to humanity as exhibit A and then he moves to the mountains and creation as exhibit B to say God existed and ex- extends beyond the very existence of these things. That God is eternal in contrast to exhibit A, humanity, and exhibit B, creation. God was a creator who was there prior to creation. And we'll see in a little bit later this morning that he will be there even prior or after creation itself is rolled up as a dirty uh, piece of laundry and thrown into a hamper and recreated. That God exists prior to all that and will exist after all that. God has no beginning. He has no end. He is eternal. All right. In fact, it's going to be an echo that we'll see throughout the scriptures. Uh, Jesus speaking of himself in Revelation chapter 22 verse 13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I have no beginning, I have no end. I was there at the very beginning of all things and at the end of all things. I am the first and the last. It's not just that he existed prior to all things, but he existed prior, during, and after all things. He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He has no start. He has no finish. In fact, Tozer will say it like this, from the vanishing point to the vanishing point would be another way to say it in regards to what Moses is saying in Psalm 90. Tozer goes on and says that the mind looks backward in time till the dim past vanishes, then turns and looks into the future till thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion. And God is at both points unaffected by either. That ultimately God is eternal is what Tozer is trying to say. It's what Jesus is saying. It's what Moses is saying in Psalm 90. Here's the question. That's wonderful. God is eternal, but what does it matter, right? What does it practically matter if you and I grasp and you and I can confirm and affirm that God is eternal? What does it practically do in our lives? I think ultimately when you and I grasp God's eternality, then you and I have a lens by which we grasp man's brevity. When you and I grasp God's eternality, it provides a lens by which we see ourselves, the very reality of our existence is utterly brief. Notice what Job says of his own life. In Job chapter 4, he says, I will not live forever, for my days are but a breath. (sighs) That's life. Comes that quickly, and it's gone that quickly. Even more powerfully, Psalm 39 says it similarly. He says, Behold, you've made my days as hand breaths, and my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is but a mere breath. When you and I grasp that God is eternal, all of a sudden we begin to realize how utterly brief our lives are and it changes our perspective on life, on our existence, on our our very selves. When you and I grasp that God is eternal, then you and I have a real sense in which we are utterly brief and our duration of life is so short, so short. Again, though, if you and I grasp God's eternality and man's brevity, what does it matter? (laughs) What does it matter if you and I really grasp that God is eternal and that our lives are but brief? What does it lead to? I want to submit to you guys, if you and I realize our brevity, then it leads to a kind of humility, all right? 
We can kind of uh, parallel to you guys, July 4th traditions. You guys all have your own things that you guys like to do July 4th, whether it be fireworks, cookouts, or lake, lake houses, all right? I don't know what it is for you guys, but I don't know how any of us don't walk away from July 4th feeling like we are an amazing nation, right? Uh, July 4th just screams we are God's gift to the world, right? I mean, we were just amazing as a nation. Uh, and, and here's the challenge, though. If you really think about our American history, and I'm not going to dog on America. There's nothing wrong with America, all right? But here's what I want to say. If you really compare America's national history with the history of other nations in the world, you realize that we are but a national toddler in diapers, right? We don't even have 300 years of world history or, or of national history yet. We are, we are but a young little nation. Even uh, we, my, wife, my wife and I got to spend a couple years in China. Uh, even just last week, we spent uh, about a week in Greece with a couple of our mission teams, had a great time. But being in places like this, you begin to realize how utterly young America is, right? Our spotlight, our moment of glory has been so brief compared to the nations of the world. We are but a handbreadth compared to the nations so far, right? And so even on July 4th, when we feel all high and mighty, if you really realize how utterly young our nation's history is, it ought to lead to a kind of humility that says, hey, when we've been at this for about a thousand years, then let's talk. Uh, then let's talk about what we could offer to the world and what we've done and what we've accomplished and what we've brought to the world, Right? A sense of brevity always leads to a sense of humility, which is why Moses will say in in verse 12, he says this, uh, looking back in Psalm 90, notice where he ends this. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. If God is eternal and we are but a brief handbreadth of time here, then you and I have to be the kind of people that begin to number our days. I, I think one of the best points of application from Psalm 90 is that you and I begin to really think about the fact that our lives are not eternal in the sense of our time here. Uh, in the sense of the fact that our lives are but brief, but, but a moment that comes and goes so quickly. And so the question is, how are you spending your life? I want to challenge you to even begin to think this summer, this upcoming week, I want to challenge you to actually budget your week. I want you to think through your week and budget in the sense of looking at and accounting for where did you spend your time this upcoming week, right? Some of you guys have better or lesser successes at learning to budget money, but we rarely talk about budgeting time. And I want to challenge you guys, really take a take a log, if you will, this upcoming week to really look at where does your time go? Ultimately, come this week, if you are on the 10th level of your favorite video game, that was probably okay in May when you were tapped out from finals, right? But it's July. It's probably time we really begin to think through, hey, where is our time going? It's great to be refreshed. It's great to relax. It's great to have some unstructured time. But over the long haul, great question is, hey, how are you investing your time? Where is it going? And if you really look at where your time is going, the great next question is really, does it correspond to your priorities and what you think is important? Where, you, where is your time going and does it correspond to what is significant and what's important? One of my favorite quotes comes from Harvey McKay and he says that time is free, but it's priceless. You can't own it, but you can use it. You can't keep it, but you can spend it. And once you've lost it, you can never get it back. I think McKay and Moses, I think both realized that time was an asset and it was brief. And in light of its brevity, it really causes us to really consider how are we accounting for our use of time and where is our time going? Are we just wasting it and piddling it away or are we really redeeming it, making the most of it? Where is your time going? Where is your life going? Look at it this week. I challenge you guys to do that. Because as you and I begin to realize that God is eternal, that man's life is brief, it leads to a kind of humility that really says to ourselves that we are not invincible. Our lives here will not have a forever time span, so to speak, on earth at least. So the question is, where is your time going and where is your life going? It's interesting that I think Moses will move from verses 1 and 2 to this discussion of God's eternality to really looking in verses 3 and 6 at God's immutability. 
I use that big word because it kind of rhymes with eternality, and I kind of like the rhyming sensation this morning, all right? Uh, But ultimately, what does it mean, all right? God's immutability simply means this, that God does not change. Uh, God is eternal, so he has no beginning or end, but he also doesn't change in that endless, infinite existence, all right? He is unchanging, and there's no shifting shadow. He does not vary. He does not grow. He does not evolve. He does not change. He is unchanging, all right? In fact, Tozier will make an incredible connection between God's eternality and his immutability uh, in his book. And he says this, that God appears at the beginning and the end of time simultaneously is not so easy to grasp. And yet it is true. Time is known to us by a succession of events. It is the way we account for consecutive changes in the universe. Changes take place not all at once, but in succession, one after the other. And it is the relation of after to before that gives us our idea of time. We wait for the hour hand to move around the face of the clock. And we look at our clock all the time in class, right? Hopefully you're not doing it this morning. Uh, But God is not compelled so to wait. For we cannot speak of measure or amount or size and at the same time be speaking of God. For these tell of degrees and there is no degrees in God. He is without growth or addition or development. God does not add to himself. He does not grow. He does not evolve. He does not develop. He does not change. God is eternal, and in his eternality, he is unchanging. Huge concept. Moses is going to emphasize this, but he's going to set up a series of exhibits that really provide us, again, a contrast to that, all right? Uh, Verse 1, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Again, uh, their dwelling place was constantly changing while God was unchanging, right? Exhibit A. Exhibit B comes in verse 3. You see, he says, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. Even as you think about the very existence that we have, it is an existence of a cycle of change, right? Uh, We know from Genesis that God created man out of the dust, and we look at Psalm 90, and and again, we see, as we see elsewhere in the scriptures, that when we die, we go back to the dust. There's a cycle of change in the very existence of humanity, which again is in contrast to who God is, all right? Even verse 4, it's not just the very contrast to man, but even a contrast to time. Again, which is kind of what Tozer was saying. Verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night, you have swept them away like a flood and they fall asleep. God, in relation to time, there's a great contrast. Time is a succession of events of change, right? Minute after minute, development after development, change after change. In contrast, God, a thousand years are like yesterday to God. He doesn't even catch wind of it. He doesn't even notice it because he stands in a sense, not necessarily above it, but beyond it in a sense. But even nature itself, notice the very nature of change for mother nature. Verse 6, or actually the end of verse 5. In the morning, uh, they are like grass which sprouts anew, and in the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew, and toward evening it fades and it withers away. Even nature itself, especially in the Texas heat of summer, right? Things look awesome in the morning, Right? But by the afternoon and the evening, all of nature is struggling and wilting under the incredibly oppressive heat of Texas, right? That's the nature of uh, earth. It's the nature of what we live in. It's the nature of our world in contrast to God. God does not wilt. God does not change. God does not grow. God does not uh, sprout anew and then wither, right? That's not the very nature of God. And so Moses is providing exhibit after exhibit after exhibit as if he's a lawyer in a legal court to say, hey, The very reality of all of life is that it changes, but it's in direct contrast to who God is. God is eternal unlike everything we see, and he's also unchanging unlike everything we see. That's where Moses is going again. But why does it matter? All right, this is going to be an echo that we'll see throughout the scriptures. In fact, Psalm uh, 102 will say the same thing. You founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. 
Like clothing, you will change them, but you are the same and yours will not end. In contrast to nature and the mountains, God is unending, he's, uh, he's eternal, and he's unchanging compared, uh, in contrast to everything else we see. In fact, it's an echo we see throughout the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, the writer says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus does not change. Tozer will say, chance and change are busy in our little world of nature and men. But in thee we find no variableness nor shadow of turning. To say that God is immutable is to say that he never differs from himself. For a moral being to change, it would be necessary that the change be in one of three directions. He must go from better to worse or from worse to better. Or granted that the moral quality remains stable, he must change within himself as from miniature to mature or from one order of being to another. It should be clear that God can move in none of these directions. I'm trying to explain to you guys what it means that God is unchanging, but the question is, why does it matter, <laughs> right? Again, this is just not fodder for a great theological textbook. What does it mean, and why does it matter that God is unchanging? What does it do for you and I? I think ultimately, uh, Moses will end our psalm in providing us a real sense of the uh, practical ramifications of the fact that God does not change, because I think we're going to find two things. There's two things that we find that we can experience in God that we can experience nowhere else. Because God is eternal and he's unchanging, what we realize is that we can experience joy and peace in him alone. Because he's eternal and because he's unchanging, he's the only one that can provide joy and peace. Notice what he says, picking up again in verse 14. He says, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all of our days. If God extends beyond the very reality of our days and our lives, and if he extends and he's unchanging, then he and he alone is the one who can provide joy and peace. Verse 15, Make us glad according to the days that you've afflicted us and the years that we have seen evil. That ultimately in the midst of all the changing reality of our life, there's a God who exists who's eternal and unchanging. Hebrews puts it like this, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a, both, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered. Life, in a sense, is like a storm of constant change. In the midst of that constant change and storm, there exists one who is an anchor for us to grab hold of, who is unchanging and who is anchored enough that he is not moved by time and he's not moved by change. That's why, in a sense, he's an anchor of our hope. He's steadfast, he's sure, because he is unchanging and he's eternal. He does not die, he does not fade, he does not change. And so we can grab hold, all right? One of the things I want you guys to see, though, is, is what's fascinating is Ultimately, if that's what he provides, I want you guys to notice how he talks about our life even earlier. Notice verse 7. He says, We have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence, and for all of our days have declined in your fury. And we finished our years like a sigh. Man, what an interesting depiction on the end of life. Just but a sigh. <laughs> that's your life, a breath or a sigh. Man, it's not really... Uh, warm and fuzzy feeling, is it, right? One thing thing I want you guys to see, though, is that what the psalmist will say earlier in the passage precedes, obviously, what he says at the end. This discussion of joy and peace and gladness comes in the aftermath of what he's talked about in terms of God's wrath and God's fury. The great wonder, the great encouragement, I think, really, of Psalm 92 is this, that he provides these things despite the fact that we've transgressed him, (laughs) That he provides us joy, he provides us gladness, he provides us peace, no matter the fact that we've transgressed him and we've fallen short of what he's asked. Despite that, he loves us and he cares for us. And it's unchanging. 
My favorite quote from this morning, again, comes from Tozer, and he says this about God's unchanging nature. Really, what I, I think, hinting to the beauty of the gospel, he says this. What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. He's always receptive to misery and need, as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours nor set aside periods when he will see no one. God never changes moods or cools off in his affections or loses enthusiasm. Every single human person in our life, whether a friend, whether a family member, whether a boyfriend, girlfriend, mother, father, or eventually a spouse, cool off in their enthusiasm. There are times to approach and there are times to read the tea leaves and go, this is not a good time to bring something up. Authorities, professors, every single person in your life, in a sense, has available office hours, if you will, right? But not God. God is always available. He's always the same. He never cools off. He never changes. He's always receptive, which really makes the God of Christianity incredibly different than the God of Islam. A God who's unpredictable, a God who's un, that his followers are unsure of, a God who does what he will. He's capricious. He's changing. He does what he will, and he cannot be predicted. The God that we worship is a God that you can know and that you can be certain of because who he is does not change. His character is unchanging. We don't always understand why he does what he does. It's always hard to understand sometimes why his hand moves in the way that it does. But in terms of his heart, in terms of his character, in terms of his identity, we can know who he is without a shadow of a doubt. Because there is no shadow of change in him. He is the same over and over again. And so this morning, one of the things I love about Psalm 90 is even in the mention of the discussion of sin and wrath and anger, what we see is in the, in the aftermath of that, God is still providing joy and experience and, and peace. And if you don't know him this morning, I will tell you that the only place you will ever find fulfilling joy, peace, and comfort is in his hand and in him and in a relationship with him. A relationship that is established by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you do not know Jesus this morning, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then my greatest invitation to you this morning is not to budget your time, but to know Jesus. To enter into a relationship with him who is eternal and who is unchanging. And despite your transgressions, despite where you've been, who you've been with, and what you've done, he loves you and his love is always available to the person of Jesus Christ. And if you know Jesus this morning, let me plead with you again, it does not matter where you've been, that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ covers over sin so you never have to shy away. You always have access directly to God. It doesn't matter what's happened this summer. It doesn't matter what happened this week. You can always approach with boldness and with confidence if you know Jesus Christ because you have ultimate, intimate access to him. He's unchanging. And because of that, it provides an incredible sense of peace and security and a relationship with him and also security in life. Life is constantly changing. Time is constantly passing by faster and faster. Last year will, will, will go by even slower than what this year will go by in school. My senior year went by so much faster than my junior year, which went by so much faster than my sophomore year, which went by so much faster than my freshman year. And now in marriage and in kids, it feels like life just goes by faster and faster and faster and changes more and more and more. <laughs> in the midst of all of that, there's an anchor that you and I can grab hold of that is but a totem that provides us a sense of grounding, of perspective and security. And it's God himself who's eternal and unchanging. And it's not just that he uh, provides peace and joy, but he also provides us purpose. Which you guys have noticed where uh, Moses ends this great psalm uh, in verses 16 and 17. Notice what he says. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. 
Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. If life is uncertain and constantly changing and but brief, then how in the world do our lives have significance and meaning beyond the grave? If life is but a hand breath and your time here incredibly short, then again, how does our lives have meaning and significance and actually enduring beyond our very lives? Psalmist will say, (laughs) here's what you do. You ask God to show you how to invest your life and then you ask him to allow it to have permanence. NASB says, confirm the work of our hands. It could be literally translated, give permanence to, right? If our lives are incredibly brief, then where do we put our lives? What is most significant? What's most enduring? God can show you and God can allow it to endure as well. It's interesting, as I was working on this passage uh, uh, just uh, Friday, I was getting to this last point, and I literally, at that moment, got an email from Amazon, and I thank God for it. All right, Amazon was pushing forward a book. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this. You probably haven't. We have kids, so they probably knew I need kid books, all right? Uh, But it was a book uh, called Kingsley, all right? I don't know if this is a Christian author. I don't know uh, who wrote this book, uh, but ultimately, here was the tagline Amazon had for this book, all right? Amazon says, Kingsley is the heartwarming story of a caterpillar. How precious. Uh, which throughout its life questions and challenges its existence. What a deep, profound caterpillar, right? Uh, Kingsley, much like many people, little Kingsley, uh, has difficulty understanding the impact he has on his environment from day to day. There's probably some good environmental uh, tree-hugging stuff going on, all right? Uh, And as Kingsley's life progresses through the ups and downs we all face, the changes of life, he finds himself as well as the true meaning for his struggles. Oh, oh, Kingsley, right? Now, here's the choice you have this morning, all right? You can go buy the book, Kingsley, all right? Read it to yourself. Read it to your little uncles or your nieces and your nephews, all right? Uh, or you can seek for another source of meaning, right? Uh, I'm going to go with Kingsley's probably not my best bet to find meaning and significance in my life. Kingsley may be great for some kids, maybe a great Christian book written, maybe, that actually may highlight the very existence and the nature of God, right? But I'm going to go with the author of the universe who is eternal and unchanging to give me a clue as to where my life should go and what my life should be invested in, right? I want to ask you, as you think about your own life, as you think about meaning and purpose, where do you run? Life flies by really fast, and it's constantly changing. What is it you grab hold of? What is it you're chasing to denote your significance and your investment of your life? What is it? Where is it you're running to? What are the voices that are highlighting for you what you should run after, right? What is it? Who is it? Ultimately, I think God can highlight for you where life is most meaningful, where it's most significant, and there's no formulaic answer to that. That's why I think even in uh, verses 16 and 17, Moses doesn't give a formula or a specific of here's what it looks like. Because ultimately, the kind of life and the kind of work, the kind of vocation, calling, and work that we're to uh, submit our lives to is different for each single one of us. But the question is, are you pursuing something that is going to be the direction of your life as God has led you to it? Or as you've just chosen it, right? I'll tell you guys, I chose a major early on in college because it was getting signing bonuses when I graduated, all right? By the time I graduated, the, the, the market had kind of changed, right? Which is why I'm in ministry. I'm just kidding, all right? Um, but again, I chose a direction. I chose a trajectory that was based on really what the world was saying and what seemed viable to me and what was basically going to reproduce a very comfortable economic lifestyle for myself, all right? That seemed like meaning. That seemed like significance for me, all right? And through college, God was slowly tweaking, slowly changing, slowly transforming that view on life and that perspective. And ultimately, it takes a God who is eternal and unchanging to really to highlight for us and to show us really where our lives are best used and where they are most significant. 
I want to challenge you even this week, not just to budget your time, but to really come before the Lord and say, hey, Lord, what is it that I'm putting my meaning and my significance in? What is going to be ultimately enduring for all of eternity? And therefore, how can I pursue those things? What would it look like? People have said over and over again, you've probably heard us say it over and over again, that there's two things that last for all of eternity. That is the word of God and the souls of men. And there are all kinds of different ways you can invest yourselves in those two pursuits. It can look all kinds of different ways. My question is, your pursuit, is it really running after one of those two kinds of things? Do you want to know the word of God because it will endure for all of eternity? And are you investing in the souls of men in some way? And again, that investment can look all kinds of different ways. But the question is, are you pursuing uh, objectives and goals with that kind of mindset? With a mindset of eternity, of a God who is eternal and unchanging. What we're going to do this morning as we kind of wrap up is I want to give you guys an opportunity just to come before the Lord and to proclaim and affirm there is one who is eternal and he's unchanging. He doesn't have office hours. He doesn't cool off. He doesn't lose enthusiasm. He doesn't change his affections. He's constant. He's predictable. He's consistent. He's faithful and he's dependable. I want you to have an opportunity just to come before him and to proclaim those things about him to say, Lord, this is who you are. And let me affirm that about you. And then secondly, let me challenge you, really kind of come before him and say, hey, Lord, where is my life headed? What is it you have for me? What is it you're calling me to? And how is my life being invested for that which will be given permanence for all of eternity? Father God, we come before you this morning and we confess we are prone to wonder. We are prone to chase the latest, the greatest, the newest, Lord. And Lord, I pray this morning that you'd return us to the simplicity of devotion to you. That you are worthy of all of our worship. You are worthy of all of our praise for you are eternal and unchanging. Father, you are always gracious. You are always slow to anger. You are always abounding in loving kindness. And we thank you for the invitation you've given us to know you and to walk with you. And I pray that you would draw us to a closer relationship with you. That you give us a, a sweeter simplicity of devotion to you. And that you would direct our lives and you would direct our paths to that which is permanent and to that which is everlasting, to that which is most significant, Lord. We love you and we thank you. And ask that you allow us to walk out of here and represent you in a powerful way as we step into classes and into internships and into apartments and wherever you'd lead us, Lord. May we represent you well. Father, we love you and we thank you. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.